This is Minor Revisions, a podcast from the editors of the journal Politics in Space, published by SAGE. I'm Eugene McCann, Managing Editor and Professor of Geography at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada, on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Each episode of Minor Revisions features the authors of a published article unpacking their publication and revealing some secrets behind it. They tell stories of how their article came about, how they collaborated with editors and reviewers to write it, what decisions they made about literature to draw upon, and what challenges they overcame along the way. The podcast provides personal insight into the often mysterious process of publishing academic articles. We hope it will help you publish your research with only minor revisions. In this episode, Lisa Freeman, an urban geographer who is a researcher at a healthcare union, and Nick Blomley, a professor of geography at Simon Fraser University, tell the story of researching, writing and publishing their article, Enacting Property, Making Space for the Public in the Municipal Library. The article was published in 2019 in Volume 37, Issue 2 of Politics in Space. It's currently free to access on the journal's website via the link in this episode's show notes. The article addresses the politics of property and public space through the case of a municipal library in Edmonton, Alberta. Freeman and Blomley argue that libraries are not only public spaces, but are also public property. For them, property is something that is enacted in relation to competing conceptions of the public that the library is intended to serve. They analyse the complicated politics of public property through the debates over the library as a place of shelter for marginalised people and the policy that governs sleeping in the library. In this episode, we hear about the way the research and writing developed over a few years, how it involved a critical reflection on a number of conceptual approaches, how its progress was intersected by other work commitments, and how the authors negotiated a rejection from another journal before submitting to Politics and Space. My name is Lisa. My research interests primarily are around housing, but around law, regulation and governance to do with housing. So a lot of the work I have, I've been doing in academia is about municipal governance, thinking about bylaws, how they regulate spaces and how they regulate housing, and kind of some of the intricate problems that happen around municipal governance. Mm -hmm. And so I met Nick because, well, I think we met years before I started my postdoc, but we started this paper and some of this work as my postdoc at SFU with Nick. So I started doing research around libraries because I felt that was a good site to really think about um, governance and regulation in different ways and thinking about municipal governance in different ways because libraries are kind of part of the municipal government but also a little adjacent to it. So that was kind of what I was doing at that time. All right, back to you, Nick. My name is Nick Blomley. I'm currently professor of geography at uh, Simon Fraser University. I do work in in legal geography. I have a particular interest in in property. Uh, Empirically, I do a whole bunch of work. Um, Some of it relates to questions of marginalization and homelessness and and urban space, which in part is the theme of uh, the paper that Lisa and I uh, worked on. I had the very good fortune of uh, working with Lisa when she was uh, received a postdoc 
a few years ago, and it's in that capacity that we work together on this paper. Yeah, this paper is is about property and the public library. And specifically, it's about the sleeping policy at the Edmonton Public Library in Alberta, Canada. And yeah, thinking about different configurations of property and thinking about the different space of the library and how this sleeping policy at the Edmonton Public Library really brought to, brought to question how people conceive of that space. And the, the sleeping policy, just to build on that, relates in particular to, to homeless folk who, as Edmonton's a very cold place, libraries are places that a lot of people use, of course, uh, members of the public, including homeless, uh, homeless people. So, so Edmonton developed this interesting policy where they allowed people to sleep in the library, but then interestingly rescinded that policy. And that to us seemed a very, very interesting phenomenon. But it came about, at least through your own work, right, in uh, your own interests in, in libraries. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should talk a little about that. Yeah, it came as part of a project that I was doing for my postdoc on public libraries and urban governance. And most of my research was in Vancouver and the Lower Mainland. So I spoke with people at Vancouver Public Library, Surrey Public Library, I think New Westminster Public Library and really starting to think about how libraries are changing in our cities. So there was two ways I started. I was thinking about whether libraries are kind of indicators or pushers of gentrification in the sense of when they get renovated or where they move, but also what different role they're playing and what space they're providing. And that's really where I started to shift when the more librarians and library workers I spoke with they kept telling me how they're trying to shift how, what the space of the public library is, how it's no longer this traditional spot for quiet and where the librarian reigns supreme, where they're really starting to incorporate an approach called community-led librarianship, where the public library really tries to respond to the community around it. So each branch of a public library in a different city will kind of respond to the needs of the people around it. So I ended up doing Edmonton or going to Edmonton because so many people talk so highly of them from Vancouver, saying that they've really incorporated this community-led librarianship. And then when I went to Edmonton, they were like, oh, that's so funny because we learned this from the Vancouver Public Library, this this approach. They were the leaders in Canada at the time. But um, Edmonton really incorporated this approach to librarianship that focused on the public, focused on the need of the people around them. So they were doing some really, really cool initiatives. Like they were bringing um, books to prisoners. They were having like, you know, different online learning things within the space of the library. And so for the people that I interviewed, the sleeping policy was really a big deal because it really showed that they were responding to the needs of the people around them. And this was more salient in the downtown branch in Edmonton. And I was there in November. And so it was already really, really cold, like minus 30 degrees Celsius. And I was talking to people and they ended up opening the library half an hour early because some of the librarians told me, they're like, you should come a bit early and just see the number of people that line up to wait to get into the library. So I got there at 9 a.m. and there was probably 30 people, probably from nearby shelters, just waiting to get into the library. And they're like, this is every single day. So they ended up opening the library half an hour early. So people had a warm place to be in the day, but then you'd have business people come in at lunch to drop off their books and then being really upset when they would see homeless people sleeping in the library. So there was a lot of contention. And for your postdoc, Lisa, you're of course working on a whole variety of publications, most of which came out of your dissertation work in, in Toronto, but then as postdocs often are, but then this uh, library project uh, was, was, was developing. And, uh, and I think you were the one who suggested that perhaps we write 
together. And uh, normally my approach would be, you know, you should write, you, sh you should be the author, but uh, uh, because the postdoc is about advancing your own individual um, publications and so on. But, mm -hmm. but you uh, very kindly reached out and said, well, maybe there's something we can talk about in relation to, to this library work. And uh, that's what was mm -hmm. the spark this back in 2014, uh, <laughs> quite some time ago for this, uh, for this project that then actually was published, I think, in 2020. So uh, things can take a little while. Yeah, it kind of started where I was starting to think about the library as an urban commons. And I would like talk about these ideas with Nick. And I think we started by thinking about and trying to like think about the library as an urban commons. And at the same time, also thinking about it in terms of public space. And this was something that I was hearing a lot from the library literature I was looking at and the librarians I was talking to. They kept talking about the library as a public space. But the geographer in me was like, this isn't exactly a public space in how you're making it because you design the rules around it. You're funded by the government. They're like, no, no, people can do anything. I'm like, but can they do anything? And so there was some really interesting discussions. Then when I looked at the library literature, I could see that a few publications people did like refer to Henri Lefebvre in terms of the conceptualization of space or maybe Ed Soja's idea of third space. And while those worked in some of these articles, for me, they didn't really speak to what I was seeing. And so Nick and I were talking about the urban commons and I forget the exact reasons why, but we decided that no, it's not actually an urban commons. That's not the conceptualization that doesn't really fit with what we're talking about, what I'm seeing. And so we kind of started by looking at um, a piece by um, Lee and Don, Don Mitchell, about people's property. And that start, started to resonate. And that kind of brought some questions about moving away from just one notion of public space to really starting to think about how property would fit within this. And maybe that would be a better lens to look at it. So I, I went back to our email threads and, and uh, there's lots of conversations where we're kind of trying ideas out and uh, bouncing ideas back off each, against each other. So, yeah, the idea of the commons was, was as you say, Lisa, that was the original kind of impetus. But um, I have some kind of reservations about some of that scholarship and it just didn't seem to fit in the way that uh, you, you described so well in terms of this, this being, on the one hand, librarians sort of characterizing this space as this open space, this free space, um, the last remaining kind of public space or commons in the, in, in the city, uh, given neoliberal kind of austerity. But on the other hand, the reality of, of regulation, the reality of librarians being built inside shopping centers. So you have to kind of go through private space to get to this radical open space. So then the idea of public space came back front and center, but public space also at one level seemed to fit, but then didn't seem to fit because this was space that was also clearly owned by the city or owned by the state. And so uh, Lynn Staley and Don Mitchell's work, sadly Lynn passed away of course this past year, uh, but uh, they, they made an argument around state property or public property and and this is something to me that's long been under-researched, under-theorized. I mean, we tend to think about private property, and we tend to think about the commons, but the reality of state-owned property and the, the function that that property serves, to me, seemed uh, undeveloped. And so it was interesting for me, at least, to kind of to think that through. So at one, we were juggling with public property and, and public space, but I think then in the end, we decided to fit this squarely into the, the bracket of the, the category of, of state property but distinguishing between two sorts of conceptions of state property. One, this notion of, of what Lynn and Don call people's property, this idea of publicly owned property as belonging to the people, as having this democratic potential. And on the other hand, this notion of, of state property, 
which is notionally open to the public, but in a much more bureaucratic way. And the movement between these two conceptions of, of state property seemed to be at play. And this was there was all sorts of interesting iterations in this decision to open the the, uh, the library to to sleeping and then to close the library to, to rescind that policy while we were basically working the I think the argument through uh, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. So for me it was kind of bridging I guess like multiple audiences from um, geographers who are interested in questions of public space, people who are doing work around cities so even thinking about urban planning students who might be thinking about different ways of conceptualizing the city and to the librarians who were a lot are really, you know, thinking about these questions of what is public space and what constitutes the public and, and how do you respond to the public when you are regulated by government, but your mandate is to the public. And so for me, I was thinking of, of those audiences um, as we started to continue to write and ended up with the property, then I started to think about other people within geography who look at property and how they would, they would use that. So it was a pretty wide audience, but also quite specific in the same, in the same sense. And, and Lisa had done this deep dive into this literature on librarianship that was, for me was completely new. And to me, it was interesting to bring that to a sort of social science, geography, urban governance journal, because I suspect that a lot of people like me weren't thinking about that or didn't know that literature. And so or necessarily thinking about libraries as spaces. I mean, we think about, you know, plazas and, and, and so on as sort of uh, public or publicly owned places, but, uh, but libraries tend to get a little short shrift. So Lisa had this wonderful grasp of that literature, which, uh, and so I learned a lot from, from doing that. And library is a sort of property. And trying to bring that scholarship to bear to a, a geography journal or a social science journal seemed to me also useful. Yeah, the writing process, from my perspective, was really smooth. Like it, it was, we talked about how it did take a while to write, but initially it seemed like we, we took off chunks, specific chunks that we each focused on. So since I was doing the empirical project and I really did do a deep dive into the library literature, that's where I started from. And Nick, since you were have been doing so much on property, you started kind of with the conceptualization of property piece. So what I remember is we both took on these big chunks and then we'd send them to each other and then the paper would emerge. And I think we were pretty collaborative on the in-between parts, you know, like on the introduction and on the first section, but most that had to do with libraries, I would take it. But the one thing I really noticed, and this was, it's, it was so great that I just felt like it was really, it was, there's a lot of back and forth. So like, I, I felt like even as like the junior scholar in, in the connection, like I could edit Nick's work and he would edit mine and it was very like balanced. And I just felt like eventually I forgot which I had written and which, like I knew he had written the property parts, but I knew I'd added to it and vice versa. Kind of worked out well. Yeah. The right, I mean, writing, writing is hard because writing is about thinking and, and sometimes writing alone is easier. Uh, in this context, writing, together with Lisa, of course, was well was necessary because I knew nothing about library. But it was also really it was also really productive because well, we knew each other and uh, I think we have a we had a working relationship. So yeah, it has to be that iterative process, but it also I think has to be a flexible, a flexible one. I remember as a very junior scholar a hundred years ago, a joint piece I did with a senior scholar where he basically sent me the piece. It was like here it is. <laughs> and it was a sort of fait accompli. And I thought, well, I, you know, what am I supposed to say? You know, because he's obviously very smart and senior. So I just made a few sentences and that was it. And it was a fine paper and I, was, I, I stood by it, but I didn't feel like I was actively involved in that. So that doesn't seem to me collaborative. So I think in those sorts of writing processes, it's, what's crucial is not to be too precious, not to be too tied to, to one's, one's perspectives and to be 
because the writing process is a process of learning and thinking at the same time. It's not just communicating the material. For me, I write to think. So I was, I think we were thinking together. I hope that was the mm -hmm. way it was. That was certainly the way it was intended. So if one of us had come in guns a blazing and said, you know, it has to be about Deleuze and nothing else, then you know, it, it wouldn't be so much fun. But uh, the fact we went through so many iterations in terms of the of the concepts, I think in particular, you know, we sort of shifted about three or four times. And I would kind of, you know, bounce some concepts uh, or a concept to Lisa. Lisa would say, well, empirically, that doesn't fit and, you know, and so on. I think that's what made it a, a more agreeable and, and sort of fluid process. But it was drawn out and it was drawn out because life intervened. We were all busy. There were some challenges and, uh, and that's OK, too. It can take, you know, I, uh, I know the pressure to publish is, is, is profound. So we don't always have that luxury. But but if you have that luxury to let things stew, to let things kind of ferment over time. Actually, we sent the paper to another journal, we realized earlier on, um, and it didn't get accepted. It got, it got rejected. We can get to that later on, but it probably took about a year and a half, Lisa, do you think, before we su submitted to that journal? I think so, yeah. Like, once we got to the writing stage, you know, like, we did a lot of the back and forth of the conceptualizing for a bit, and we had some of the challenges. I had just started a teaching position that I taught four and four, right? So, like, like my first term teaching in a small teaching university and then writing this paper was a lot to balance. Yeah. There are, I mean, there are many papers I've given up on. This is the question we're thinking of here is, is how do you carry on? But I think in some cases you shouldn't carry on and it's okay to let things go. And that's just a judgment call. You know, it's not working or the relationship with the other author isn't working or the, or the scholarship isn't coming together and, and cohering. How does one keep going in that sort of drawn, more drawn out sense, I think it comes to me back to a question of, is it fun? Is it engaging? Is it, is it stimulating? Is it exciting? You know, it's very easy to write uh, boring papers, but, um, but they're not fun to write. So is the writing forcing you to think things through in new ways? Engaging, for example, with public property, which I think is, is under-researched, or the library, which is in terms of, of scholarship in, in social science isn't really um, flawed to the same degree. To me, that was exciting and made it made it fun and interesting. We kept kind of nudging each other too, didn't we, Lisa? You know, we'd sort of, oh, it's been a while, you know, maybe we should get back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Lisa would say, well, I'm teaching, you know, 300 hours a day or a week or whatever. <laughs> so maybe next yeah. week yeah it's true it, and it felt like it for me though I never like I sometimes felt guilty I'm like oh I'm so sorry it's taking so long to reply but I never felt like it stopped like I didn't feel like I was ever like like conceptually stopped or anything like it just felt like like we kept going even when we we're like oh sorry I couldn't get to it this month or oh sorry that sort of thing it felt like it was still progressing in some ways like I've been in projects where they just kind of stop and you're like oh no <laughs> like how do I continue this and for me it was just like a slow build like it just kept continuing on and we kept doing our part even though the stretches between finishing those parts might have got a bit longer than we initially had thought it just it kept kind of moving and I think part of this is we had like small goals to work towards right like a conference mm -hmm. presentation or things like that where we would need to like oh we let's do it for this conference presentation so then that forced us to kind of get through some of those conceptualized bits yeah. right and to think about how we're going to frame it so that's absolutely yeah so we did test some of these ideas out or well you did because you were the lead author and and i didn't feel like i was going to say something i was going <laughs> to make up the library stuff so so and there was there's a conference called the Lawrence society association i forget exactly when it was but uh, there was actually a special session on i think it was called urban experimentation 
and law or something like that. And I think it was that in part that that helped nudge the paper because we could, you know, I think it was interesting to think about property in that context. So writing the abstract helped kind of reframe the, uh, the, the work. And to me, I mean, I think it's really useful to have those sorts of both timetable obligations. You know, you've got to do a presentation, mm-hmm. so you need to know roughly what you're talking about, commitments, but also the fact that you have to give a 20-minute presentation about your paper forces you to some extent to think, okay, do I have a paper? Is there a here? Is there a there there? And so I think that was that was useful as well in pushing the project forward, but also in formulating it in some ways. Pretty sure it was Seattle 2015, I think. And um, there was a lot of really great sociolegal and legal geography scholars in the room. So we had this amazing audience who, and and the one thing I've learned through the process of this research, everybody likes libraries, other than maybe some conservative politicians. (laughs) But like people, the minute you talk about library, people have things to say and they want to say it. And so it was, I felt like we had a lot of engagement with the audience and then there was some, you know, who I view to be key legal geography or sociolegal scholars who look at urban governance and questions of the city in that room. And so that yeah. started with some really good conversations and questions and reflections. on I think initially because we did like kind of workshop it at a sociolegal conference that we initially were like, oh yeah, a law and society journal would be a good point, right? Because law and property and thinking about that and because of like the feedback we got from that conference but I don't know about you Nick but I often find like um, writing legal geography or law and geography it's always like okay which is this the socio-legal journal piece or is this the geography piece and it's always a bit hard for me to decide where it goes so we submitted it there and it got rejected <laughs> like yeah not even revise and resubmit it was just like no <laughs> We sent it to a journal called Journal of Law and Society, which is a very good British-based journal of law and society. And we thought, law and society, it's law and geography. It seems to it seems to be a good fit. We did go through reviews. It wasn't just summarily rejected, right. which was interesting. But that means that draws out the process, of course. And the reviews were kind of, they seemed kind of quite positive. It was interesting. They said, this is not for us. The paper is not for us, as if it was a sort of, you know, they had a sort of template. And it wasn't quite clear what that meant. It wasn't legal enough or something. I don't fully know. It wasn't clear. This is the problem. Sometimes you get reviews and you just don't understand them, which makes it hard to respond to them. But in this case, we didn't have to respond to them because we'd been rejected. So when you go through the review process, either you get desk rejection, it's just, sorry, no, it's not, it's not for us, or you get sent to reviews and then it might get rejected, or you hope to get the comments back from the editor saying, yes, we're interested in the paper. You have to respond to the comments of the reviewer in some capacity, either through minor revisions, which is the ideal solution, or revise and resubmit, where you have to go through the process of, of speaking, going back to the reviewers. So uh, so that was surprising, but I've had many papers rejected, so it shouldn't be taken as the end of the world. We were, I think, rather surprised, but <laughs> yeah. I don't remember us being kind of completely devastated by that process, were we, Lisa? I, I, I don't remember. I think I also, around that time, I think I had a flat out desk rejection from another Law and Society journal. So I was like, oh, this isn't that bad. <laughs> I had all of that going on as well. Right. Um, no, no. And it, it kind of like, I felt like once we had got, because the process was relatively long, by the time we got to the point of submitting it, like I felt like it was a pretty solid piece. And so, right, like it was pretty yep. polished compared to some things I've seen when I'm a reviewer, right? Like I felt like, we had both done edits, a lot of work on it, and it felt relatively polished. So, and I also remember some of those initial reviews, like they weren't 
like I've had some before where you're like, oh, why am I even doing the work I'm doing? Right. Like it wasn't that bad of a rejection. Like it wasn't like your thesis oh. or your argument's wrong or your empirical research is horrible. Like there was nothing like that. It just clearly yeah. wasn't fit for that journal. Yeah. And I think this, it speaks to, as you, you, you mentioned, this question of kind of interdisciplinary research and where you send your work. And a lot of the work that we do, of course, in geography and related fields has this interdisciplinary quality to it. So it could go to a variety of places. And, and, and sometimes you fall between two stools. I mean, it's not legal enough or it's not geography enough. And so you're kind of caught in the middle. Apparently it wasn't legal enough. I don't quite know what that meant. So maybe we thought, OK, well, maybe it's a better fit for a journal like EMPC, uh, which is where we sent it. And we got it. We got a better process there. So obviously it was the right, it was the right choice. Um, <laughs> and we could talk about the review process there, uh, perhaps. I'm not sure if we changed the paper an awful lot when we sent it. So you don't have to, you know, you don't have to kind of rewrite the paper to resubmit it to somewhere else, as long as you think it's a strong paper. And that is crucial. I mean, if you do a lot of reviews, as I do, it's surprising the, the quality of papers that one sees is often quite poor. So the job of the reviewers is not to write your paper for you. You you should be sending a very good, high quality paper to the reviewers. So we had a good quality submission and we sent it for review and we got a revise and resubmit, which was interesting, which means it has to go back to the reviewers or at the discretion of the editor. So that means that one needs to uh, engage carefully. Well, one should always engage carefully with the reviewers' comments because they've spent time working on that uh, piece. And well, the comments were kind of, they weren't very challenging, were they, Lisa, I don't think? No, no, it was for a revise and resubmit, it was actually pretty minor revisions from my perspective. Like there, again, like the first one, like there was no major critiques. Like to me, like when I've had a paper either rejected or, or revise and resubmit or just like rework it, you know, a lot of it is like, oh, we're not sure about the premise or can you like, your, your theoretical section needs to be substantiated a lot more or you know, but we didn't have any of that. A lot of it seemed to be like, I really did appreciate the reviewers, how organized the written one was, like, and how detailed they were, because I've had some before that are very vague, right? <laughs> like, you're not quite sure what direction to take. So these were really, really specific. Like, one person just went line by line, basically, and was like, can you change this sentence? And they'd have, like, the page number and the sentence that they would want changed and that sort of thing. But for the most part, it was relatively minor, like a little bit of contextualization of saying, you know, we're in the UK, we don't know the context of legal structures on libraries in Canada. Can you add that to the paper? Or, and there was a little bit, it was very clear, like even if they didn't mention it, that the two reviewers were from the UK, which had had a whole different history of libraries and austerity cuts, right? And like a lot of the literature I was drawing from was from the UK. And so it makes sense that people from the UK would be reviewing it because a lot of the community-led librarianship work is coming from the UK. And so, yeah, so for me, I'm like, okay, like, yeah, I didn't think about that, but that's very specific. So I made sure I added that part in. And then once I realized reviewers from the UK, I'm like, okay, I'll make sure they know I know what happened in the UK. And that might be good for other people who are reading it to know that I'm actually learning from the experience of, of library people and social sciences, scientists who are studying libraries there. So yeah, it was relatively minor, I thought. It was relatively straightforward. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a sort of interesting guessing game where you try and figure out maybe who the reviewers are or where they're coming, <laughs> where they're coming from. And uh, it has been my experience that sometimes uh, if, if the reviewer comes from, say, the UK or from the US, sometimes there's a sort of a little bit of exceptionalism. You know, well, it's very interesting, but of course, in the UK, 
you know, what, how does this relate to what's happening in New York or whatever, right? Which, which wouldn't be the case if you were in New York or London. If you've written a paper about, you know, libraries in London, it would have been, well, obviously that's a universal claim. So sometimes it's important to, to acknowledge that and, and to address it. That's fine. I mean, that's okay. Although one can, I think, take a, you know, do it with a pinch of salt. But our approach was to respond very carefully to the reviewers as one, as one should. And, uh, and we drafted a very detailed blow-by-blow response to the comments of the reviewers. Not everyone does that. And I think that's that's a mistake. I think it's a useful strategy to do that, not only because you then engage with those comments, but also the process of doing that actually helps you think through your own arguments. Um, and, and actually, I've changed my paper as a consequence of doing that process. You go, oh, you know, they're right. And so there, there is more of a sort of dialogue that happens. And at the same time, it's quite likely that there are things that we didn't agree with the reviewers, like, you know, maybe we don't have to <laughs> reference UK literatures to the same same degree. <laughs> That's also fine. I mean, uh, as, as long as one has a reason for doing that, a reason that the editor can, uh, can, can agree with, and maybe the reviewer can disagree with, That's the editor. That's the editor's choice. So we had a, quite a long memo, didn't we, Lisa, that uh, went, that we drafted? Yeah. And the, yeah, I think it was close to a page per reviewer. We had just had two reviewers. And I think it's, we did like a paragraph, like, you know, not fully thanking them, but that sort of thing. Like, okay, you made some really interesting points. And there was a couple that were like, yeah, that, like, I think there was one where, you know, people go into the research, like, well, why didn't you interview the homeless people? And we're like, well, the project was about administration. And they also don't know the history that of the work Nick and I do, where we do interview mm-hmm. people who are marginally housed and homeless for other work that we're both doing. And so I was like, oh, right, they don't know that, that I often, that's my starting point. So I tried a different starting point and wanted to look at the people actually doing the regulation, not those impacted by it. So there was stuff like that. We're like, well, obviously that's a really good point, but like we can't change the research and this is why we're doing this. So, okay, we'll, we'll add a footnote or something like that. And I feel like I did a few more footnotes for some of the questions people had, because I'm like, okay, people don't need to know the full legal structure of libraries in Canada for this paper. But I'll put in a footnote just if people want to look at it or if the legal people want to see what statute or what legislation they can go and look and, and figure that part out. And yeah. yeah, I'm glad, Nick, that you mentioned like the, the writing of the response to the reviewers. That's something I hadn't really done in detail before. And so I learned about that, too, that it is quite a process where you do engage with it a bit differently. And as someone who does do detailed reviews when I'm a reviewer, it, it would be nice to get that back, right, to actually see what the people thought of your review like and and kind of have a more of a collaborative process even in that in that role like I kind of yeah and I learned a lot from that so it was a good a good part of the process for me and I can't remember if we wrote to the editor as well but usually when you resubmit you can you can have confidential comments to the editor com- and comments to the reviewer and sometimes that's a good strategy as well to say well reviewer one is clearly out to lunch we don't have to say it in those terms but you know i disagree with reviewer one for these reasons and as editor that's your judgment call as to whether you think that's that's a valid reason you're speaking to to two different uh, audiences there so we resubmitted and it got it got accepted there was a very small comment from one of the reviewers but obviously they read it and said it's good it's good to go so hopefully it was well it would seem to be successful in 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 responding to those concerns and questions mm-hmm. And in the in yeah. the comment, we were saying on page 27, you can see where we've changed this, right? So the reviewer can go through quickly and say, yes, yes, no, yes, no, and it makes their life easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it felt pretty like pretty quick in some ways, like once we got into this journal and once we got the reviews. And like I know sometimes that process of revise and resubmit can be really long and drawn out and, and really stressful, right? Where you're like, oh, I don't understand, and especially as a junior scholar, like 
where you're like, oh, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? And this one, it didn't feel like that. It felt like we got some really great reviewers who took it seriously, who engaged detail. And the process just seemed to go pretty smoothly from my, from my end. Yeah, and, and reviews can be devastating for people. I mean, uh, <laughs> they, they, they can. I, I, I still, you know, cringe when I read, read reviews of my own work. And uh, I've been doing this for a long time. So learning ways to negotiate that, not always to take it personally. Uh, sometimes it is personal. I mean, that's just the, that's a bad reviewer. I mean, um, if they're being aggressive or, you know, you forgot to cite me, that's the standard kind of issue. Uh, but I get reviews now back where they say, well, you should cite Longley. And that's so, okay. <laughs> I'm doing okay, you know. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> Fail to cite my own, my own work. Or, or you misunderstand Blondie. That's what's happened to me as well. <laughs> so it is, it is challenging. And, and for, a junior, uh, for a junior scholar, I think it's really important to, to check in with somebody who's done this a few more times to get their advice. That's what I would recommend at very minimum. And also learn uh, and actually do reviewing yourself, I think, is also a useful strategy for, for going through this process. And I, I often uh, send, when I get asked to do reviews, I'll often send them to my graduate students because I'm also happy for them to do it. But also because it's it's good experience, not only to engage with other people's scholarship, but to learn that review process, I think, is and learn how to do it respectfully and intelligently and constructively is 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 really helpful. And the... The editor, yeah, sometimes they'll say, well, I ask you just to respond to these, <laughs> take these seriously or something. It's not very helpful. In the context of our paper, I think we actually got detailed. You know, I su suggest that you focus on what reviewer one is saying at point one and, and so on. So that was much more helpful. All you can do is to make a reasoned argument for why you're doing that and why you're not doing these other things. So you just have to think it through and be confident in your work and confident in the kind of reasoning that you can apply. I don't know, Lisa, if you had that kind of ambivalent editorial <laughs> direction <laughs> so I don't think I've had yeah I haven't had too many where where it tried to veer me into a wrong direction but I think sometimes politically or even I don't know as someone in geography if you're not always taking an explicitly Marxist stand sometimes even though I don't disagree with that sometimes it'd be like oh add this add this well that's not my paper like I'm doing this legal geography analysis or I'm doing this analysis and drawing from this literature it's like okay this just maybe isn't the journal for me right? If those are all the reviews he kept getting. So it took me a bit to get to that point. And I don't think I did it too often because at the beginning, you just want to get your paper submitted. But I think I've learned in the process that sometimes maybe it's just not a fit and you can bow out too. And, and as right. our experience was like, we had one, one paper who's, or one journal is like, nope, this isn't for us. And then another journal that it was a really easy process mm -hmm. to get accepted. Right. And so I think that's good to think. That's right. And if you've done a PhD, uh, you know, you have a committee and, and sometimes they pull you in different directions mm -hmm. where, you know, a committee member will say, well, you should go to this way. And, you know, you have to find your own way. It's the same, same here. And also with reviewers' comments, I mean, sometimes the comments are like, well, you might want to think about X or you might want to think about Y, but they're just, you know, they're just suggesting possibilities. It's not, it's not a requirement that you do so. So you know, learning that and passing, the, making those distinctions, I think, is, uh, is important. Yeah, and I think the, the other thing, too, that like at U of T and working with you as well, Nick, is just like learning from people who've done this before, right? So as, you know, tenured faculty, I think it's great to share these stories of, oh, I got flat out rejected or this one. Like I remember someone I worked with at U of T who's very well known in like legal geography and sociolegal studies was like, this geography journal just flat out rejected me. What? Like, and then she had written so much in urban geography journals before as a leading scholar in it and was flat out rejected. And like, 
hearing someone of that caliber and that history get flat out rejected, you're like, oh, okay. Like, it's not just me. It's not. And people who've been around the block a bit can tell you, yeah, Antipode is not the place for you or, you know, this journal is or, you know, you don't want to go there because the editor's crazy or, you know, whatever. There are strategies. And in some cases, too, if you're thinking of some particular twist on a project to maybe contact the editor or one of the associate editors and saying, you know, I'm thinking about X. Is this even worth it? I mean, they're not, they can't say yes, they won't accept it, but they'll say, you know, you should make turn it into a progress in human geography type piece or, or something. Mm-hmm. It's more a progress piece than, a, than it is a geoforum piece. And that's, um, I think, all part of the job. I'm just thinking about the advice I'd have. I think for me, it's just, you know, like not taking it too personally, like when you get certain reviews, because it's so hard not to. And also to really, like, like I learned from this paper is to really put out the best thing you can. So then you have less work for the reviewers to do, right? So like as polished as possible, as a junior faculty at that time, like I, if I was writing this on my own, I would have asked other people to review it for me before I sent it out for revision, whether it's my peers or mentors or supervisor or something, just so like you get all that initial response back. So by the time you send it out to the reviewers, you've already responded. You've already like kind of defended what you're thinking. You've kind of molded it. So for me, yeah, I would do my own internal, my own review process before sending it out to review and or just chatting with people about it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of tips. I think obviously uh, not sending out, sending half finished papers is a good move and surprisingly not one that everyone seems to embrace. I think also knowing what your paper is about. Sometimes I get the sense that people send papers off for review and it's maybe two papers, I'm not sure. And, and they want the reviewers to figure it out for them. You, you, that's, that's not their job. So one of the strategies I often encourage, for example, is write the abstract. If you can write an abstract and do it quite easy, relatively easily, then you've probably got a good paper. If it's almost impossible to write the abstract, then you've got a problem because you've probably got three papers or you don't actually know what you're trying to say. So these are other sorts of strategies. I think another strategy is read lots of other people's papers and recognize also the difference in voice, the difference in style. There are different ways of presenting material. So I think we don't, we don't think enough about writing, the, the craft of writing. I mean, people, you know, people make a lot of money who are very good at writing. Our job in part is to write. And writing is hard to do for, for very straightforward reasons, for the mechanics of writing, uh, but also because it requires thinking and reflection and synthesis and all these other sorts of complicated things that are, that are hard to do. So so re- other type, reading other people's writing, including reading non-academic writing or reading non-fiction, these are all good strategies because well-written work is work that does half the job in getting, getting through that review process. It could be a great paper and poorly written, uh, it won't get through. So uh, I think those are also strategies. There are questions about where you send your piece and, and if you're thinking about, if you're doing that interdisciplinary work. I think you need to recognize that maybe you do need to do that extra work in saying, where you're coming from if you're doing that work. So if you're going to, uh, say, a Law and Society journal and you haven't published there before, you need to explain why your work fit in that scholarship in that, in that area. Another strategy which I would always recommend is to, is to present your work, to teach your work. That's also a good strategy. If you know, a third-year undergraduate class kind of is interested in what you're saying and can understand what you're saying, then, then you're, you're doing a good job. And teaching is hard to communicate complex ideas to that audience is a good strategy, I think, for also formulating and focusing the, the project. Yeah, and I think for us, like, 
to follow up on that is I presented our a version of our paper four times before it was published and to different audiences, right? Law and Society, at the university I was teaching at, like at a lunchtime seminar, at a public event organized by the Urban Studies Program, where I got just a lot of people who weren't academics responding to it because they were really interested in libraries and, and then to a class. So like you get a lot of different feedback. By that point, I could have just recited an abstract off the top of my head. <laughs> I think for me, like I hope it, brings kind of, because there's a lot of public discussions about libraries these days, at least I think there is, maybe I'm more attuned to it, that it brings more people into that debate about what libraries are and how they're still really important, even though we can get eBooks and even though people don't maybe use and access the collections in the same way that they used to. So I feel like that's brought a bit of the debate. And yeah, that, that's the one thing that comes to me that I think is useful, that it's actually bringing more substance to that debate. and also showing the complexities of it. So for me, when you're thinking about the audiences, I kept thinking about the librarians I interviewed who are going to read it because you know that they're going to find out if there's a piece written about Edmonton Public Library, they're going to read it, right? So I really wanted to make sure that I didn't villainize the library for rescinding the policy, but actually make the policy something for us to think about, right? And then other people can learn from that as well to be like, okay, this article isn't just villainizing this person who's doing the regulation, but actually showing the complexities of the issue and providing some other ways of of thinking, right? Because to me, if a librarian thinks about the library's property, maybe that'll impact some of the decisions they make or some of the ways that they do their work, right? And I'm not saying that people are going to be doing that, but I like to hope that that can help bring some different perspective on the work. Yeah, my, my hopes for the paper are modest as always, because that's that's the way I tend to think. And also I write to some extent selfishly for me in order to think. So it's about my own thinking and, and the thinking that I have with friends like Lisa. So it's the process as well as the product, I suppose, that's crucial to the uh, to the story and, and the learning that I went through in that process. I hope, yes, I hope it in, encourages scholars to think about libraries more creatively and critically and, and librarians and the work they do. I also hope that it helps people maybe tackle this question of state property or public property uh, and take that on more seriously. I didn't look to see if it's been cited. I don't think it's been it hasn't kind of gone to the top of the scale when it comes to citations like some papers do. I did hear from a librarian in the States who just randomly emailed me a, a few years afterward and said, uh, this is, you know, this is the paper I've been looking for all my life. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was wonderful, right? So I'm going to put it in my class and, uh, you know, uh, are you writing any more? I said, well, no, not planning to, but uh, why don't, you know, why don't you carry on? Why don't you do that? So, yeah, those are the things that come that come immediately to mind. Yeah, there, there was another thing, too, um, a couple of years ago, I think short, shortly after it was published, but someone on Twitter, and I forget his name, but he's another scholar who I think was trained in BC and is in Mexico City right now. And he does a lot of like blogging on Twitter about the writing process with multiple like highlighters. And, and someone sent me, she's like, it's your paper. I'm like, what? And it was he had taken photos of it to teach his students what good writing is. I'm like, wow, that's a huge compliment. And he was just like, look, this is how they did their introduction. This is how they outlined things. And they raised questions and they still made it readable. And I'm like, wow, okay, thank you. That was, yeah, beyond anything I would have ever imagined seeing my oh, that's great. That's, that's dissected so, productively. Yeah, so it wasn't the product, it wasn't the actual argument. It was the it was the, the, the writing process itself, mm -hmm. wasn't it? Yeah, oh. yeah. And my, uh, my daughter is now studying library science at UBC, so she teases me about this paper quite a bit. Uh, I think she had to read it, or it was referenced. <laughs> so full circle again, interesting ones. 
That's a wrap for this episode of Minor Revisions. You've been listening to Lisa Freeman, an urban geographer and healthcare researcher, and Nick Blomley, a professor of geography at Simon Fraser University. They were discussing their article, Enacting Property, Making Space for the Public in the Municipal Library. The podcast is made possible with the support of Simon Fraser University's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Our theme music is by Conrad Urbaniak. Our graphic designer is Samantha Thompson. And I'm Eugene McCann. Please subscribe to Minor Revisions wherever you find your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Podcasts. Write a review, share with your friends and colleagues and consider assigning episodes to your students. Politics in Space is an international journal of critical, heterodox and interdisciplinary research into the political and the spatial, published by SAGE. The journal's editors are Louisa Biewasiewicz, University of Amsterdam, Patricia Daly, Oxford University, Alison Mounts, Wilfrid Laurier University, and Joe Painter, Durham University, and me. Find Politics and Space on the SAGE Journal's website and follow it on Twitter at ENVPLANC. That's at E-N-V-P-L-A-N-C. 